on this episode of Ask LA. It's important to think about how there's so much that happens on land before landscape architects even arrive to the table, you know, from the formation of rocks and geology from many millennia ago and how that affects the ecology that grows there to um, who owns the land, who owned the land, who are the uh, indigenous communities of that place. The Ask LA podcast is brought to you by the American Society of Landscape Architects. Produced by the ASLA Emerging Professionals Committee, each episode is geared to provide information and insight into the profession of landscape architecture for students and emerging professionals. On this episode of Ask LA, we continue our candid conversation with Chloe Hawkins of Nelson Bird Waltz Landscape Architects. During this part of our chat, we'll get to know Chloe a little better, as well as discuss some of the amazing projects she has had the opportunity to work on. So you're working from home currently, mm-hmm. yes. um, given the current pandemic situation. How has that changed the way you and the entire firm practice? Yeah, you know, I've been surprised in some ways at how functional everything has been. You know, I think that we're, everybody is well connected. We're lucky enough to be working for, for Thomas and for an office that's able to provide us the infrastructure we need at home to, to continue to be well connected and functioning. Um, and I think, you know, we're able to still have the meetings and be con- VPNA into our, our um, computers at work. Um, there's been some connectivity issues, but for the most part, I've been really kind of surprised at how the kind of functionality aspect of doing the work has just been able to continue. I mean, I think the difficulty is that there's, I mean, there's so many difficulties, right? I mean, if I think just beyond the work, I mean, all the mental health things that people are dealing with, um, the challenges of being in different cities, um, the the different levels of access that people have to even being able to go outside right now. Um, And then the just incredible turmoil that's happening in our country right now is very, very distracting. And I feel really compelled to be uh, involved in in some way. so yeah, I think I'm sort of get, like opening opening the box here, but I think it's like, um, yeah, the the sort of functionality of of being a landscape architect working from home is is totally working. But at the same time, I'm so cognizant and aware of the privilege that I have to even stay at home right now. Um, and right. I find it somewhat mind boggling that you know all of the workers who are deemed uh, essential are mostly much lower paid workers and, and, and being put at the, the most risk. So yeah, there, there's a lot, there's a lot to be aware of and to think about right now. I think it's really important. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned earlier in school, kind of the importance of the camaraderie and the studio environment and your classmates, um, same in the firm. And if so, how is that? And how is that now with working from home? Yeah, I mean, yes, camaraderie and and with my colleagues at work is is 100% true. I think it's really one of the best the best things about about our office. Um, and working from home, I think we're all doing things that we can to support each other. We've actually started these series of meetings where um, everybody in the office meets for half an hour with somebody else in the office once a week. And it's just a chance to talk about anything. It doesn't have to be project related and just kind of checking in and and trying to make sure that we're still connected to each other. Um, and But it is different to not be able to just like turn over your shoulder and be like, hey, you know, 
what about this? Or, um, you know, see, see people's facial expressions in person. And, you know, even these Zoom calls, I, it's, I don't know how many of them that you're on, but I was talking, you know. <laughs> too many. <laughs> too many. <laughs> yeah, it's like you can, I think I'm becoming aware of how much of the feeling of connectedness comes from being physically with other people. And um, I'm not an introvert. Full disclosure, surprise, surprise. <laughs> but but I think even for some of my introvert colleagues, they've been been noticing that. Like, if there's something, there's some sustenance that comes from being with other people, even if you're not talking to them. Whereas um, this kind of engagement that we're having on Zoom, it's almost just like consuming another image. You know, even though I can I can see you and I can hear your voice and you can see me and hear my voice, it's not the same thing as um, as being with being with people. But, but we're doing what we can to try to support each other and, and, and be in touch and um, even go on socially distant garden walks and um, even small things like that are helpful. Yeah. And outside of the interpersonal dynamic, how is it affecting the creative process like for projects? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, let me think about for me personally. Um, I mean, there's there's some small things about it that make it more difficult, um, like having access to printers. Um, for me, so much of my process when I'm studying grading, uh, grading study or planting study is being able to easily print out a base map and then draw and sketch and have that interface more easily available between hand drawing and studying something, not looking at the screen. And there's everything now is looking at the computer. And so trying to find ways to still have that sense of of freely and loosely studying something while you know working with a mouse <laughs> um i i don't know i'm not there yet i'm still i'm still trying and have been doing a lot of like messy uh photoshop you know large paintbrush sketches <laughs> over over sessions to just get it even some, some basic ideas for things but i i think that there's Definite, definitely some challenges that come from not having all of the infrastructure of the physical office. But it's nothing that can't be overcome. It's just different. And yeah, I mean, I'm looking back forward to getting back to the office at some point, but I don't know when that's going to be. And, um, you know, again, I've been surprised at how much we're able to really just keep keep going, going here. And, um, and I mean, I think with the creative process, I've started um, joining a new project in the office has been going for a while. But for that, it's just been for me, like embracing constant communication with um, some, some of the new people on the team, feeling free to ask questions and then, you know, embracing my kind of mantra from my own design practices, like it's okay if it's ugly, just, to, you know, <laughs> get the idea across for, to communicate what you need to communicate. And um, once you can kind of get design ideas out there, you know, when you present design ideas internally in a process with, with your own office, it doesn't have to be beautiful, it just has to be clear. Right. And um, you can make the beautiful stuff later when you're presenting to a client and when you get to really thinking about what the construction details are and making sure the geometries work. But um, for design practice and creative practice, I think being clear is the most important thing initially. How do you think uh, this change working remotely, if it continues, um, will change education? Oh, I think it'll have a huge impact on education. Um, and to to what degree, I'm I'm not sure yet. You know, it's some of 
some of the ease with which we've been able to kind of transition to some of these systems um, has been surprising to me. And I've been like, oh, well, what would a world look like if it was just all this? Um, but I think there's a, a couple of really, really important points with this, which is that not, there's not, I don't know how equitable this is, you know? Um, it's not, it's not equitable because not everyone has the same resources to have space to be at home in which to work. Not everybody ha is is living in a, in a, in a <laughs> there's different degrees of safety in, in different places that people are living right now. And not everyone has the access to high-speed internet. Um, and the other tools that they need for, um, and, and, and just like acknowledging the, the distractions that, that people might have at home. Um, so I don't, think, I don't think it's equitable ultimately to, to be doing this. Um, I think that there's something that is beautiful about coming into a school environment in which everybody is sharing the same resources. Um, and I think that that is something that even though institutions, I'm sure, are fighting to make sure that students have access to those things from afar, it's not going to be the same when you're working from home, you know. Um, that said, I think, you know, as, as the pandemic continues, there, we're just going to have to be adaptable and find ways to uh, adjust. But my hope is that this will not you know, revolutionize universities to think that all education can happen online. Because especially, yeah. I mean, I mean, I think all education, but design education relies so much on physical making um, and on the, um, even the way that we have critiques of group crits, of being able to pin up, of being able to take in people's work in a way that is really fundamentally changed when you have to see things one image at a time on a computer screen. All right. Let's uh, let's dive into your career path a little bit. You mentioned first job was at Dirt. Mm -hmm. It was right out of school. Right. Um, how was that? What did what was moving from studio to practice like? What was different? What did you learn? Well, I think because I was working with Julie and uh, Julie had been a professor of mine in school. I was you know familiar with working with Julie, and in some ways that that practice at DIRT was, it felt like a continuation a bit of being being in school, because um, I had worked with Julie when I was in school, still too. And I mean, Julie, I learned so many things from Julie, and part of that was about um, just her approach to practice and and making there be a, a voice for landscape architecture. And that, that practice, as you may or may not know, is specifically focused on, um, has been specifically focused on post-industrial landscapes and really arguing that when those landscapes are redeveloped, um, however, as, as private properties or, or public, um, that those histories of the industry are not erased, um, especially places where there's been pollution and toxicity. The, the government EPA response has been to, 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 to cap with clay and really erase a lot of those industrial traces. So Julie has worked so hard in her career to um, give a voice to, or to, to ensure that those, those histories are not lost and that there's aspects of even the spatial um, designs of those industrial landscapes that can make their way into the next iteration of, of, of that place. Um, so I learned a lot from her about that. And one of her mantras is name it and claim it. 
So like, you know, you have to, <laughs> whatever it is, your idea, your proposal, um, it's not just option A, B, C, but you know, you give something a title and that imbues it with, with meaning and personality and intention. Um, hmm. So that Great. I'm seeing, seeing that happen in practice uh, with Julie was really uh, influential for me. Yeah. And then straight from there to Nelson Bird Waltz or something? No, so from there, I, um, from Julie, I worked for Julie for a year and then I worked for um, a landscape design practice called Sightword Studio in Charlottesville for a year, um, which was run by um, Sarah Wilson and Pete O'Shea um, and small, small design practice um, with a few, a few other employees that was doing um, the projects that I worked on was a lot of campus work, uh, uh, institutional and educational work in the region, so in, in Virginia. Um, and it was there that I really started to get more into CAD programs and some detailing, um, which honestly was something that wasn't really taught when I was in school at EVA. It's very, very different now. But um, when we were in the program, there was not as much emphasis on some of those technical skills that you kind of really need to get going in practice right now. Um, so I picked those up more more on the job, and um, yeah, and I really really enjoyed my time at SiteWorks as well. And um, then I essentially uh, got recruited to to NBW, uh, or at least there was a job opening that I was made aware of, and I decided to to apply. Um, and something that I'll, I want to say about this and just share with young practitioners is that I think the more experience that you can have, the better. And what also what you think you might want may not be what you want. Um, uh, I think, so I work for, so three three firms now, but I've been at, at Nelson Bolts for eight years, I guess, yeah. Um, but my parents are always worked for themselves. Um, my, my father was an architect. My mom has always been um, doing different variations of international peace and justice work. And because of that, I always thought that I wanted to work for a small firm and you know, have something that was like really nimble and really small and independent. Um, and while I had really formative um, experiences at DIRT and with SiteWorks, one thing that I really appreciate about working at MBW that I didn't realize that I, I wanted was that we're small enough that everybody knows everybody but we're big enough that the teams that you work on can change. And a small office, because the team is always the same, it feels like the dynamics are the same, the kind of way that, that work happens, uh, the hierarchy, the personalities. Um, and there's not really an opportunity to experience a different way of approaching a project. Um, and at MBW, I've been on larger teams and small teams with different, uh, led in different ways. Um, and I really love being um, a part of a practice that's large enough to be able to offer that kind of diversity of approaches to design projects. Right. Yeah, that's fantastic. How much um, inner office work, like how are you on teams with people from the New York office or Houston office that does that happen a lot? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm curious to sort of think about like the percentages, but yes, a number of us are on inner office teams. Um, I have worked a lot with um, the New York office on um, uh, on projects, um, and I just joined a team uh, with our Houston office, where the teams are split between Houston and and Charlottesville, and. Um, 
Yeah, so I think it's it's really it's really it re it really works. I think one of the things that makes that work is that people's roles are really clear. Um, I think when we're working in different time zones and needing to um, make sure communication is really clear, um, that knowing what your role is on a project is really important. You know, like my role is, um, you know, I'm project manager and to, and lead in design for one project. I'm focusing on um, plants and project management of uh, procurement and um, final design for another project. So that you know, like you, you can kind of have that be that be clear. So that when we meet together as a team, it's efficient to give your your updates and you know who to go to to um, ask questions. That's smart. How has your personal practice, the way you know you do your work daily, changed from job one to now ten years later? <laughs> oh, so much. I mean, I, um, I mean, my role has changed a lot. Um, yeah. Ten years in, I'm managing a lot of projects right now. So, um, not a junior person on the team, but I'm kind of in charge of of leading management and on some projects design and some projects both. Um, so it's my my role is really different, and of course that that changes that changes a lot. Um, I think that for me, I you know, as a, as a more junior person, I wasn't as involved in figuring out what the structure of a project is. Like, how is this, how is this design project actually going to occur? What is the schedule? How are we going to engage with each other on our team internally? How are we going to engage with the client? Um, and now in my current role, I, that's a big part of what I do. And also even on new projects, helping to define the nature of the dialogue. Um, and that's something that I've really enjoyed and really trying very intentionally on the projects to make sure um, that there's a, a seat at the table for everyone within an organization to, to have an impact on the, the design. Um, when that's for, for more private, privately owned clients, but open to the public. Um, and that then on the public projects that we work on, um, that, that public engagement, we try to advocate for public engagement processes being integrated. Um, but yeah, so like what I do every day is changing. I'm still still designing, but um, kind of thinking more in a, a kind of um, bigger, more more projects, more um, management, and a lot more communication perhaps than drawing on a daily basis. <laughs> so you know, and I think I mean, I've talked to a number of of colleagues, and this was actually a topic of conversation um, on our call. Um, with my, my random last minute tenure <laughs> graduation <laughs> call of, you know, what, what is it like now to be in, in more management roles 10 years in? And um, I think that, you know, I still definitely find ways to, to draw. And I think that the way that we work at, at MEW too is not, it's not a top, top down, I do this drawing and I hand it to you and then you take it. It's like, that is just not the way that I want to work. And that's not the way that um, the projects that I work on work. Um, mm -hmm. So it's um, it's more collaborative. People, even more junior people, have an opportunity to take something on and study it. In this podcast, we talk to landscape architects from all different backgrounds about how ASLA helped advance their careers. Ready to find out how ASLA can help advance yours? Just head over to asla.org/join. At every stage of your career, the American Society of Landscape Architects is the first place for you to connect advocate and learn connect with peers 
mentors, and industry leaders with exclusive networking opportunities through local chapters and professional practice networks. Gain nationwide exposure with FirmFinder, JobLink, and the ASLA member directory. Learn with ASLA's extensive online learning library and access to member e-newsletters, blogs, and the award-winning Landscape Architecture magazine. Advocate for your profession by taking part in ASLA's I Advocate campaigns on issues ranging from licensure to climate change to transportation. To find out how to join, visit asla.org slash join. Again, that's asla.org slash join. I'd like to know about the first professional project you worked on that was built when you first got to go to a built project and say, I did this. What was that project and, and what were your feelings? The first that? professional project that I built, um, that was built, because I, when I was at, at Dirt and SiteWorks, none of those projects were built while I was there. But when I started at MBW, in the first week, I worked on designing a um, giant pollinator garden. It was giant for me at the time. It was like, what, like <laughs> 50 feet long by 15 feet deep, all, all plants, um, in an existing residential landscape that was sandwiched between an existing kind of more ornamental but still made of plants-based flower border and then a bee meadow. Um, and this garden uh, was, it was just an opportunity to also study um, uh, pollinator species and learning about the different colors that bees and butterflies see and then integrating that into the design of how the colors were laid out in the bed. And it was in some ways a small project for the office, but one that I was able to get into research for right away. And then it was installed. <laughs> and um, so that was really, really exciting. So not, not as many uh, um, painting details, um, not as much, uh, not a lot of infrastructure plants-based, um, but still with a real uh, conceptual intention about expressing um, ecological diversity and um, in terms of the design being a sequence in this garden from something that's more formal to something less formal. Great. And what's your favorite project that you've worked on? Oh, that's just such an impossible question. <laughs> I mean, I, I honestly have asked feel what's like, your least favorite. <laughs> oh, no, there's not one. Um, I mean, I, I think that, you know, my favorite project is likely whatever I'm working on at the, at the moment, because I, <laughs> every good. project is, is something new and a chance to learn and keep, keep sort of living a life of inquiry. But um, my a recent favorite has definitely been Mount Cuba Center. Um, which is a botanical garden in Delaware that is that features native plants of the Piedmont region. So they're at the northern end of the Piedmont there, and we're at the southern end here. And um, I led a master planning effort for them that, honestly, I can't remember, it was three or four years ago um, that we started that, and we're now um, about to wrap up construction documents for the first phase of implementation. Um, and their their mission is one that really aligns with, um, I think, the 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 mission of our office at MBW, or part of our mission, which is at Mount Cuba, they really believe that stewardship of your environment, wherever you live, can be inspired through the experience of beauty and beauty of plants in particular. So it's been a real privilege um, and a pleasure to work with their incredibly smart and dedicated staff um, over these years. That's great. Do you believe that landscape architects can change the world? 
Yes, I mean, I think on a, if we think about things just purely uh, physically, everything we do changes the world because in, I know in a, if we think about it in a small way, because it, it makes space, makes space different. Um, but, you know, I think when I think about changing the world, I, you know, I, it's, I think more about how we go about it in some ways is more important than what it is that we make. And um, also that a landscape architect changing the world, even the sort of thinking about the phrasing of that question, it's like as an individual, it's, it's I don't wanna perpetuate in landscape architecture, this kind of myth of the solo genius artist who goes and puts their stamp on something. That's not what we do. We work together in complex teams to create something that, um, that hopefully has the, that has also been shaped by the community that in which it is um, and all of the expertise of all of the people that are that are on the team and you know I think especially in these times right now I with just the the impossible to ignore um, disparate impacts of uh, COVID-19 of the pandemic on communities of color and all of the protests that are happening all of the 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 racism that we're seeing right now, it is so important for us now, always, but now especially, to ask how the inequities of America are reflected in our field and what can we do, what is our role in either upholding those or um, challenging them? And how can, how can that approach really be integrated into a design process? And so thinking again about the process of, of changing the world, of how have, of approaching approaching a product that kind of reflects a process that's equitable. I mean, I think there's a few things that we can all keep in mind as practitioners. Um, one of which is that the public is not a homogenous mass of, of people who on a sunny, beautiful day want to skip out the door and go stare at native plants in the public park, which is, you know, definitely what I want to do. <laughs> but the, the public is, you know, is uh, an elderly couple. The public is, um, a mass of protesters, as we see, who are taking over the streets right now and, and, and public parts of these places are so, so essential. Um, the public are people of different races and ethnicities and sexual orientations who are treated differently in public space. Um, and I think that that is just so important to keep in mind as we uh, approach design problems, that there's not, um, people, while people might be equal in terms of what people deserve, that's not always the way that, that people are treated. And anyone who is working in the public realm, I think that needs, needs to, to keep that in mind. I think there's also, um, it's important to think about how there's so much that happens on land before landscape architects even arrive to the table, you know, from the formation of rocks and geology from many millennia ago and how that affects the ecology that grows there to um, who owns the land, who owned the land, um, who are the uh, indigenous communities of that place? What are the histories of displacement that exists on that piece of property? How did this project even come to be um, offered to you uh, as an opportunity for, for design. Um, and a, a lot of these things are not in our control, but um, it's just, again, important to be aware of them and what are, what are the incredibly rich uh, histories of that land and not all of which may be positive or in, in many of which may be difficult. 
Um, and at MEW, research is really integrated into our design practice, and I think that that's really um, an important as aspect of practicing landscape architecture. So, yeah. yeah. It's, it's amazing the times that I've heard Thomas speak about projects, all of the background and history and the research into that that goes on. It's, it's very in-depth and, and amazing. So, so that goes across every project you guys do at MBW. Do you have like historians and researchers on staff or is it is that something that's contracted out? Or? We, it depends on the project. I mean, we do, we do have had some people who focused on research in the office, um, but we also have people who are then um, really, uh, who are hired for specific projects to do a deeper okay. dive. And, um, and yes, research is definitely embedded into our process at MBW. And I have to say that it's not, some projects have an opportunity to do a deeper dive into research than others. Um, again, that's not always up to us. Um, in terms of deciding how much fee is available for that, but we can integrate that into our proposals and we can advocate for it, and we do. Um, and so trying, <laughs> trying to make a place and <laughs> process for, for that to happen. And, and I think it's also really important to note too that it's important um, as we look into many narratives um, that may have happened on that land to try then to make a place at the table um, to center the voices of the people um, that those stories belong to in telling those stories and in, in having an influence in shaping the design. One of the projects in our office that seems to have done that really well is um, the Maki Komako project that's happening right now um, in Virginia um, that has integrated the, um, the Algonquian peoples. That's not something that I've worked on, but have sort of watched it across from the desk from um, Evan Graham, who literally sits behind me, and, and Jen Jessup across the room, um, seeing that the work that they're doing has been pretty pretty awesome. All right, believe it or not, Chloe, we've been talking for an hour. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I wanna just give you a minute here at the end as we wrap up to, um, think about maybe things that you wish you would have known, uh, you know, and when you first started off and through your career, uh, maybe words of encouragement or advice that you could offer to students and emerging professionals that might be listening uh, that you think may, may help them. So I'll give you the floor here for as long as you want to, uh, to pontificate advice. That'd be great. Um, thank you. Uh, I think a couple of things come to mind um, that are just an approach to people who are really first starting out. I think that for me, it was really important to say yes to a lot of experiences. Um, and you get, you gain so much confidence and knowledge from working with different groups of people in different configurations. And not all of those opportunities have to come from your design office. Um, and especially at the beginning, I did a lot of um, pro bono projects. I did competitions with friends, some of, went, some of which went nowhere, <laughs> but were really, for me, helped to hone my practice of practicing and of working collaboratively. Also at the beginning of my career, I, um, I think that one, th one thing that's good for everyone to keep in mind is that your opinion matters and the way that you see the world matters. 
And that when we're working in office environments, which can sometimes be hierarchical, it really depends on the office, the nature of that hierarchy, um, you know, how often you have a chance to contribute to the design process. It really, it really differs. Um, but there's always multiple solutions to landscape architectural design problems. And, you know, we try our best to come up with good ones. Um, but the fact that there's multiple solutions always means that there's that that multiplicity is good and that um, and that even young practitioners, junior practitioners will, may have the best ideas. Um, so when you it's important to sort of have that sense of curiosity, I think, and ask people who are more senior questions that you have. But just be aware that you might have the, the best response to something um, and that if somebody tells you that this is the way you do it. It's good to learn from that, but just be aware that there's always many more different ways to do it as well. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that that's part of what makes landscape architecture so great is um, is this is the fact that there's multiple solutions for any problem. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Ask LA. Be sure to subscribe to the Ask LA podcast on iTunes, Google, or your podcast service of choice to catch every episode. For more information about the great work of the American Society of Landscape Architects, check out ASLA.org.